Alright, alright now, plunge heads. You're tuned into the shittiest hour and a half or so on SoundCloud, where we dive deep into America's political and cultural toilet, one terrible take at a time. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at plunge underscore podcast and tell your friends, foes, and comrades all about us. The time has come once again for roving hordes of magatines to descend on our nation's fair capital. The war between cops and robots is in full swing, and racist sheriff par excellence Joe Arpaio may yet be able to clear his record. We're all about the laughs here on The Plunge, and we abhor Samantha Bee's refusal to follow through on what was otherwise a perfectly serviceable joke about first daughter Ivanka Trump. We'll talk about some of our favorite recent stand-up specials instead, and briefly mention the atrocious upcoming motion picture adaptation of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, directed by, who else? Zack Snyder, of course. For story time, Dan will tell us all about doing God's work by booing Rudy Giuliani at Yankee Stadium, and we'll close out with a tribute to Anthony Bourdain, whose death couldn't have come at a worse time. Keep your friends close and glare your enemies until they slink out of the room. This is The Plunge. missed us and uh if that's the case welcome it's the plunge i know i missed sam in the intervening time that we did not have uh the show because so much has happened roseanne is off the air uh, samantha b is embattled we may lose bill maher yet the left will lament the fearless hero who apparently is being scrutinized by the right for The joke that he was sued by Donald Trump for making that Trump had to provide his birth certificate to prove he wasn't, like, an orangutan. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you're suing over a joke that barely even uh, cuts that deep, then clearly you've got some thin skin. So we're going to begin with a story that... Sam brought to my attention, and this is a D.C. local story, but it was something that I felt was so bone chilling because it feels just so close to what a school trip to dc would have been for us if we were in middle school at this time and it is maga hats are the newest form of preteen rebellion yeah so basically i started noticing that around uh, our fair nation's capital i guess because it's that time of year in which you know, school trips are going to D.C., so there's lots of middle schoolers or, you know, maybe high schoolers walking around. And I noticed a lot of these kids, I mean, especially the white ones, but in general, are wearing just the MAGA merchandise. Every, like, Make America Great Again hats, the bucket hats, like baseball hats, white, red hats, hoodies, T-shirts. I've seen shoes. Like, I don't know where they're even getting this stuff from. I assume that, like, the souvenir shops in the area are selling them. I've seen kids getting off the bus at Union Station from whatever town they were at, and they're already wearing the MAGA stuff. Do you interpret this as an 
ironic sort of joke that you know these kids are just trying to be middle school edge lords and that they don't believe i am loathe to like uh criticize the kids too much because they are like as i said you know they're like teenagers and shit i mean they're gonna have and there's no way to assess their like sincerity with this so it's just it, it sucks but it's not I, it, you can't clutch your pearls too much I guess, yeah. I mean, I, de- I definitely feel bad for, like, the, you know, and you see, like, these groups of the kids. You can tell they're all from, like, the same school. If it's, like, all, like, white kids in the MAGA shit, and then there's, like, a few minority students, I definitely feel bad for those kids. But it's, like, their experience is definitely manifested in more than just, like, the MAGA merchandise. Mainly, I think it's it, it sort of is just, like, I mean, Trump himself is about excluding other people. So what better, like, in-group status symbol do you need than like a maga hat it's literally like uh it's like a you know middle schoolers are all about excluding one another it's just like another dumb way that even adults use to like discriminate against one another. oh and an element that you neglected to mention there it's that they roving packs of red hat wearing teens not only are all white but mostly male yeah uh, i will say that there have been some uh MAGA women as well I guess by women again you know once again like teenagers but still I did see a group of like kids who were dressed you remember the disturbing Trump girls or whatever like they're like these I guess high school oh, the, girls the, the, who were yeah they sang at like the inauguration or whatever or some sort yeah, of put, put the audio in here cowardice are you serious Apologies for freedom. I can't handle this. When freedom rings, answer the call. On your feet, stand up tall. Freedom's on our shoulders. USA! Enemies of freedom. Face the music. Come on, boys, take them down. President Donald Trump knows how to make America great. Deal from strength or get crushed every time. But, uh, yeah, I definitely saw a group of kids dressed like that, which was bizarre. God, what were they called? It was the creepiest name. It was, like, the Patriot Kids or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to say it was something like that. They were, like, American Girl Dolls come to life and conservative as hell. But uh, it also reminded me of this um, article I found from, I think, last year in the New York Times op-ed section. And it's written by this lady annie pfeiffer and it's called help my three-year-old is obsessed with trump and it's about how her literal three-year-old says trump because three-year-olds just say whatever word elicits a response and she was talking about how at her like bougie upper east side daycare like all the other parents are scandalized by her kids saying trump it's classic i love that fucking article I think she needs to take radical intervention to prevent the child from turning MAGA by the time he <laughs> or she understands sentences. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about how teenagers don't have politics, I think it's a little weird to think that a three-year-old could have politics. But I'll, I'm going to read from that just quickly. On his morning at school, Yassi, the kid, made few friends by screaming Donald Trump at the top of her lungs in the crowded stairwell to her school. People whirled around to find the traitor. Red-faced and humiliated, I pulled her aside and said, shh, 
Yeah, see, we do not scream these things at school. And so an expletive was born, much more potent than any four-letter word. Annabelle, she would say, turning to her best friend. I want to tell you a secret. Annabelle would dutifully move closer. Donald Trump, Jassy would do her three-year-old best to whisper, which of course turned out to be a poorly modulated stage whisper, audible to nearly anybody. <laughs> this is bleak. What do you think of this kid... A, um, a young adult MAGA hat defender, how would you respond to his statement? I think it comes down to people being afraid to speak for themselves, fear of rejection by peers. I get a lot of hate for being a conservative, but I don't let it get to me. Some people cannot deal with the pressure. As if, like, I mean, again, like, <laughs> we don't, like, like we said with the Parkland kids, like, you can't. You can't go too hard on them for not having, like, fully fleshed out political ideologies and, you know, you got to give them space to be wrong about stuff. Uh, but I hate to think that people really take seriously the idea that the reason why people become conservative is that you are persecuting them. Yeah, and of course that totally ignores, like, what I see in these roving packs of MAGA kids, which is that... They're the MAGA kids are like the majority. They're like, I don't know if they're like from rural schools or whatever, or just su the suburbs. But like, if you think that people only can become conservative because you make fun of them or something, then you forget about the fact that in some places being conservative is the majority. And that's not like that uncommon. It's true. So it doesn't explain a place where it is like a majority belief. Well... I know a place where MAGA hats are not a majority, you know, that the consensus, at least among the staff, uh, is against the MAGA. This is a story from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Cheesecake Factory staff at a local Miami Cheesecake Factory, they yelled at Eugenior Joseph, a 22-year-old man, a black man, wearing a MAGA hat. A red Make America Great Again hat. And apparently, according to the Daily Wire, they made threatening gestures towards him. Oh, they got a David Clark tweet. Think Cheesecake Factory will close out all their stores for a day of race sensitivity training for every employee at a cost of $16 million like Starbucks. David Clark <laughs> tweeted, using the left's warped logic. The fact that he's a Donald Trump supporter negates his blackness. Oh my goodness. I, I, it is... Go ahead. It is funny how they make fun of the left for, like, catching their rhetoric and that kind of, like, identity language, but then immediately turn around and use the same fucking thing. And I also love the people who've been saying he deserves a lifetime free supply of cheesecake, as if, like, the only... Tr commodity that like the cheesecake <laughs> factory has to give is like cheesecake they don't have the... i guess if he had gotten kicked out of like starbucks it'd be like he should get a lifetime of free starbucks paul joseph watson straight up just like claims that they called the man the n-word yeah i was wondering about that i was like did they actually do that i mean <laughs> I, come on this is <laughs> if you're against People who wear MAGA hats, you are 
chances are you're against the use of racial slurs. If the story was that like a bunch of white servers kicked a black guy out, that would obviously be bad. But there's no reason to like just <laughs> infer that out of nowhere just because Paul Joseph Watson said it like baselessly. Paul Joseph Watson, obviously, uh, prison planet Paul from InfoWars. So. Famously declared that uh, neo-thatcherism, I guess, is the new punk rock. Ugh. It's not pretty, but uh, we've also had a physicist at a health physicist at Michigan State has been charged with bestiality with a dog. I have a question. Two counts of committing a crime of bestiality. How did, would they? Did, how, does the, the dog testify? <laughs> What's that, boy? What happened to you? Oh, oh! Hat T is accused of penetrating a dog with his penis and his hand. Yeah, I'm not sure what the evidence they have is. Um... It's a basset hound. <laughs> oh. They're the saddest looking dogs, too. That's not fair. I mean, not that it should have happened to, like, any other <laughs> breed of dog, I suppose. No, uh, but this... Jeez, what, what what drives a person to commit s such an act uh, when they have, like, I don't know, like, a position of power? Now, to be fair, these are merely allegations that have not been proven... So a preliminary hearing has been set by June 21st to determine if there's enough evidence for Hattie to stand trial. Uh, it's not clear to me when this is alleged to have occurred. I don't know what kind of evidence could be put forth. Woo! What is it, boy? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking earlier. But I guess, uh, you know, don't let strange people near your dogs you never know what they're up to uh, i personally have had people who seem like they're trying to steal my dog or be creepy so it's definitely something that maybe people don't think about that you should keep in mind if you are a dog owner and if you're a human being who walks around places maybe you would like to know that a tesla in autopilot mode crashed into a parked police cruiser in Laguna Beach. Sam, this is just terrific. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's made a lot of promises that these self-driving cars, I feel like there's a certain level of progress that's expected. And every incident like this where apparently this police car was just totaled. No, I, uh, I agree that it's terrifying to have like these robot, you know, killer robot cars driving around and... I'm wondering who's going to call the Tesla in autopilot mode a terrorist, which is what he is. I think that the terrorist uh, color should change to orange. <laughs> yeah, I think after 9-11, we were periodically just warned that the risk of being hit by another terrorist attack was like really high one day. And then it was like, orange one day which was like medium high i remember being a kid and just like operating under a constant state of affairs where i assumed that like 9-11 uh, was gonna happen again like any day yeah just that like homeland was going to break out like any second and that you would have to like fight the terrorists to save your family <laughs> but that hasn't happened and uh the only people terrorizing us are 
unmanned Teslas. But this Tesla actually had a driver in it. I guess he just wasn't <laughs> paying attention. Yeah, the driver was a robot collaborator. <laughs> oh, you had this story about the drones. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess in, in terms of other robot fuckery, we saw that Time uh, made a, its cover up of like 958 of these creepy little light-up drones on just a, you know, evening sky. So just, you know, periodic daily reminders of our robot overlords, the fact that we will all be replaced, if not just melted down for our raw essential, you know, materials. Um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, whose disgusting crimes against immigrants and American citizens alike... Um, this guy should be thrown in the gulag. So, could you just, before we talk about how apparently there will be a chance for him to expunge his criminal record, can you just talk about what Arpaio did? So Arpaio was found just like, was convicted for contempt of court uh, after disregarding orders, uh, court orders, obviously, to stop, like, his horrific immigration enforcement practices, including, you know, putting people in tents in the Arizona desert, naked profiling. Uh, there was one He deprived them of uh, food and water and made the men wear pink clothes. He was very sadistic. Yeah, even on an individual level, he was sadistic. I remember reading one thing about how he led a lady's dog back into her burning house and like made it stay in there and die with in like the burning home uh just really bizarre and disturbing stuff and uh he was i guess pardoned by of course the big guy donald trump and the judge overseeing the case refused to wipe the conviction from arpaio's record so even though he wasn't going to do jail time or see any consequences as a result of the pardon he would still have that on his record but recently we found out that he could score a win and, uh, and possibly wipe his record entirely clean by uh, going to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Um, it's going to weigh whether he, he can, they can have the entire court reconsider that order appointing a special prosecutor in his case. So I don't know why people like this keep getting second chances. And it's just like kind of uh, <laughs> unfair, I guess. I guess also with the talk of pardons for Dinesh D'Souza and potentially pardons for Rod Blagojevich and Martha Stewart. Right, th those are his uh, bipartisan efforts to like pardon a few liberals or something like that. Right, and obviously the last two names were people who he'd worked with on The Apprentice. And it's bleak as hell to think that Joe Arpaio could walk away without a criminal record. I mean, literally just scot-free. Isn't that the phrase that everybody's using these days? You sent me an amazing fucking Dinesh D'Souza quote. He said that his weekly court-mandated community service as a result of his like campaign finance fraud took a toll on him. Uh, and the quote was, that's very difficult to do if you're trying to have a productive life or hold down a normal job. Like, yeah, no shit. It's Sherlock. It's difficult to deal with the American legal system. The point of community service is that you take the time to do it and that it's partially, you know, it's it, it requires your efforts. Otherwise, what would the point be? Yeah, and D'Souza is this, like, right-wing, just utter hack, and 
I mean, he's a filmmaker. He, um, I think he had political ambitions himself at one point. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza. Now, I guess you can't call him a convicted felon anymore. <laughs> a pardoned felon. Yeah, the presidential pardon is a weird thing, isn't it? It's kind of like God powers. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the uh, you know everyone else thinks this, but I think differently. But uh, Trump also you you also sent me this hilarious statement by the president on what the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh Jesus! So, yeah, I, I, I he was pissed that some of the team didn't want to come to the White House, so <laughs> he disinvited the whole team. And the statement is amazing. He said, the Philadelphia Eagles disagree with their president because he insists that they proudly stand for the national anthem, hand on heart, in honor of the great men and women of our military and the people of our country. Like, they don't like Trump because Trump likes the flag too much. Trying to paint football players as, like, anti-military it's just such a fucking leap. And I even saw that people have been saying, like, here's a window for the XFL. Yeah, to be just a, what, anarcho-communist fucking uh, football league. Pretty telling that he uh, pardoned, you know, a right-wing pundit who'd been convicted of, what, you know, campaign finance fraud. And he wants to pardon, you know, Rod Blagojevich, who committed that electoral fraud as well. People were saying it could have been a uh, signal to those that Robert Mueller is ex cross-examining that Trump will be able to pardon them. And Trump even said, right, that he could pardon himself. Oh, my God. You know, I'm not the legal mind of the podcast, but that just sounds fucking dumb. Yeah, they've definitely been uh, doing some kind of Richard Nixon, you know, when the president does it, that means that it is not a legal sort of fuckery out there. I mean, Rudy Giuliani's been out there as saying as much on the fucking, you know, media circuit. So it's clearly the uh, authoritarian tendencies of this administration are starting to become pretty apparent. Let's jump forward to Terrible Takes. This first one is wonderful. It's a preacher. I believe he's from, like, Palo Alto, California. Yeah, he's weird, California. He's not, like, uh, you know, Deep South or wherever else, like, these fucking weird, like, televangelist preachers come from. Well, he absolutely implored his followers to help him buy his fourth private jet, this is uh, very reminiscent of the Bogwan in Wild Wild <laughs> Country. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was getting a little bit of those vibes. This guy said that God has told him to buy a Falcon 7X, for, which is a $54 million private jet. Um, he said he was hesitant at first, but uh, God then told him, I didn't ask you to pay for it. I asked you to believe for it. Got to think sometimes. <laughs> Now, why does he need the like? Where does where like where does he travel to that he needs jets? Did he say? I think the point is that he said specifically preachers have to have every available voice and every available outlet to get the gospel preached to the world, and I, <laughs> I don't know. He also has uh, you know obviously he has like fucking three other jets, and uh, I think recently he's walked this back a little bit and says that he's going to donate. One of the three that he currently owns to charity, if he gets the fourth one. 
<laughs> so like, I guess if I have four jets, I could get rid of one of them. But I, I don't know what this game is. I think he he must just assume that like people are actually willing to do this. And apparently they are, given that he has multiple private jets. There's some funny quotes in this story. Duplantis apparently said... Um... Jesus had told people to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, how are we going to do that? I can't live long enough to travel by car or by ship or by train, but I can do it by an aeroplane. And then in 2015, Duplantis was in a video with another preacher, Kenneth Copeland. And in the video, Copeland described traveling on commercial airlines as being, quote, in a long tube with a bunch of demons. <laughs> yeah, I guess these people have some serious contempt for their fellow uh, human beings. Yeah, nobody but... likes when you're their, like, ball sack sweats and coach. Like, just get used to it. <laughs> yeah, unless you want to be alone for the rest of your life, you got to get learn to deal with other people for sure. But uh, apparently, like, the, the much more realistic reason for why he wants this new private jet is apparently that the jet he bought 12 years ago uh, can't fly nonstop, and he has to pay these very high refueling costs during his long trips. So, I, you know, it's clearly pretty self-serving. Samantha B called Ivanka Trump a feckless cunt. We all know this. There is a wide, uh, loud movement to get her fired. And I guess what infuriated me about this was that Samantha B and her writers should have, I mean, they should have known that this would blow up in, in their face like this, not to mention God, when you, when I saw that she actually apologized to Ivanka, just utterly pathetic. And we've not been fans of Samantha B on this show before, so it's not like I'm I am rushing to say, uh, oh, she doesn't deserve to be canceled, because quite honestly, there's a million shows like the one she does that do it better, and who gives a shit if one news desk talk show goes away? But I think what we gotta focus on here, Sam, sorry, I feel like I've been rambling about this, is... Don't you think that she should have anticipated the backlash that obviously these brainless conservatives would run with her use of it and obscenity? The, with this, this like, you know, feckless cunt statement, it, it, she should have maybe realized that, like, the only people who are, like, really upset about the overstep are like people who actually kind of like already watch her show like conservatives were gonna run with it because they just talk shit and that's like the whole right-wing propaganda machine these days is a bunch of like shit talking and culture war bullshit and clearly if you're gonna come out and, and use you know pull out one of the big guns and use the c word you're gonna you're doing it to offend and to provoke that reaction but I think the failing is that the people who watch her show, like the liberal civility people who are offended by Donald Trump and his like fucking, you know, grotesqueness, they're, they're going to be the ones who are, I see, I saw so many people who are saying like, you know, you shouldn't have to apologize, but I also wish you hadn't said that. And like, that's where, that's why she had to apologize. I think was cause like her own supporters are like these kinds of people who are like 
actually scandalized by that shit. Whereas like Trump supporters may claim like, oh, like it's, you know, obscene or whatever. But Trump is literally the grab by the pussy guy. He's the guy who made fun of what a guy with cerebral palsy. He's just clearly not. There's, there's no fucking pearl clutching to do on the on behalf of Trump. You don't have to apologize for calling this man and his family what they are. And it just goes to show that the reason why forgot who said this uh i want to attribute it but conservative comedy is so bad because all it is is just people getting really angry and this is just the liberal version of that samantha b's show often is just her getting extremely angry and indignant and i guess there is an audience for that and comedically maybe for a lot of people it does work because i think she puts up pretty decent ratings but like when you kind of fall into the same traps as like you know rush limbaugh or like working yourself up until you're like she's a cunt i don't know not that i think women shouldn't be able to use that word to describe other women you know with impunity i think you should and i think you like who fucking cares they bleeped it but like, Sam, honestly, the, the apology is is egregious here. Exactly because, like, like number one, it's even more cowardly than when Kathy Griffin apologized for making like the oh, Trump head. Kathy Griffin got like attacked by the Secret Service, like not attacked, but they they like came and questioned her. Yeah, that was a lot more ballsy than calling Ivanka Trump someone who's like widely reviled, even amongst women in this country. Um, you know, the c word, but. I, I guess it kind of cheapens your comedy. Like, if you are an edgy comedian and you are the kind of comedian that's going to call someone as important as Ivanka Trump, like, the C-word, then you got to follow through on that. Like, you got to it, – it's a brave move, and you have to, like, land it. So if you just apologize halfway through, it just makes it feel more like a corporate decision, more like – you know, whatever channel she's on. TBS, her, yeah. TBS, like, said, like, look, this is not playing well. You got to walk this back. It doesn't, it feels sort of like the, oh, the ABC taking, what, like, uh, putting Roseanne on the air and then pulling her off. It's like, you, if you're going to go for this, then you got to go for it. It just looks, like, crappy. I don't know. It's uh, not to say that, like, they shouldn't have taken Roseanne off the air, but it just kind of reveals that sort of like boardroom decisions dictating what happens in the writer's room almost. But then what are we to make of this, you know, cultural echo chamber of she should be fired. No, she should, he should be fired. You know, Bill Maher should be fired. Sam (laughs) B should be fired. Rose. It's it's just, there is no rhyme or reason. There is no central rule book for a million private corporations to determine (laughs) <laughs> who is like economically viable? So this uh, tit for tats or either or, it's exhausting and stupid because it, it's ultimately like it's apples and oranges. You can't compare the two situations. It's not. It's not fair to really. No, and of course, and I mean, I think it's about as it's it's a goofy endeavor to just try to get everyone fired that you don't agree with, no matter. I mean, you know, extreme cases obviously there may be, but. 
I do sort of like the image of like just this rabid Twitter populace like forcing these networks to like you know like dance motherfuckers like who you, you need to figure out cool like fast like who you want to pull who you want to promote like it's it's just getting chaotic out there and it's maybe because you're in the media industry you have a different take on it but like for me as an outside observer i think it's hilarious people that i had really friendly relationship with at my company have been fired for tweets that's crazy it's something that is an unfortunate byproduct of you know the last maybe five, ten years. I guess sort of literal interpretation of everything. And the fact that social media is like God at this point. It's always like, God, they said so much worse stuff on their show, but the the tweet, you know, because it's the tweet, that's somehow like the the word of uh, God, you know? I guess when it's written down like that in like a, just a perfect little soundbite that is so easy to disseminate, then... Uh... It's like uh, it's easy for one of them to like catch fire and for that fire to then like burn the person who actually tweeted it in the first place. Uh, someone tweeted it was really funny, like Roseanne and Samantha B potentially both getting fired is like when you put a dollar in the vending machine and two bags of chips fall out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially since also they've been dogpiling on like what uh, Bill Maher as well, uh, as we mentioned earlier. So we might get to lose like some centrist lib in addition to the, you know, far right lunatic that is Roseanne. Let's wrap this samantha b and roseanne conversation with this question objectively let's try to just like take all of our like you know subjectivity out of this if roseanne wasn't conservative and she did this same action do you think she would have been kicked off the air so if she was like a liberal i just want to dig into this idea that she's she's off the air because she is a conservative and the same things they said about like tim allen for his shitty uh last man standing show which is uh renewed by fox but what do you think about this idea that the media is intolerant of conservatives I think it's bullshit because every time the conservatives try to draw like some false equivalency between the Roseanne firing and something stupid like what we said, Bill Maher calling Trump an orangutan or uh, Sam B calling Ivanka Trump the C word, I guess, look, neither of the circumstances are the same at all. Calling a white person an ape is different than calling a black person an ape by a wide margin. So the Bill Maher thing is not equivalent. And the Sam B thing is at best sexist, but as you've established, women can call each other the C word. I think that's commonly accepted. Uh, whether or not she should have said it is, like a, I guess, a spiritual question. And NBC or TBS bleeped it anyway, so who the fuck cares? But like, I, it's just, I really think that you can see the lie in this idea that like Roseanne was fired purely because she's conservative. She was fired purely because she says something blatantly like that we all kind of accept to be fucking racist and it's a toxic brand to be seen as racist. Maybe it's problem that it's not as bad to be seen as sexist or something like that, but I don't think that any of those examples apply to that and I think that's a concern that I'm not willing to touch with a 10-foot pool anyway. I think that it's fair to say that Roseanne was fired for pretty standard reasons that have not much to do with her politics unless you consider being racist conserv a conservative politic i mean yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, i mean there you go <laughs> kind of um but these guys spent a lot of time arguing the opposite 
it was really weird to, not weird like completely expected because he's like a media gossip queen but trump tweeting that samantha b's show should be taken off the air because of what she said i mean obviously that's like a dictator fucking move <laughs> i mean censorship yeah, I, mean, I mean what 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 buzzwords do you want to throw into that it's obviously like fucked up <laughs> Yes, the the our large adult president should not be dictating what's uh, going on on the on the boob tube. Well, let's now talk about moving on uh, to lighter stuff. Let's talk about a couple of comedy specials we've seen recently on Netflix because uh, you know there's been some interesting stuff. Why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, I, th- I I had the idea for this segment because I saw the fabulous um special that hari kondabulu has on netflix it's called uh, warn your relatives i saw this one too and what did you go into it expecting because i like hari but sometimes i feel like he falls into that sort of trap of self-righteous like clapter humor like you know just making good points and stuff i feel like that's what a lot of people who do political comedy like that's really the like trap but i have to say he transcended in this special i thought yeah i think he i think he just had good jokes like he makes jokes about political stuff but it doesn't take away in any way and uh i mean it also helps that i think like he's addressing it's in seattle like he's addressing a fucking you know crowd in a city that has like you know, a genuine like socialist council member and uh, recently vo- voted to like tax large tech companies for their uh, corporate presence within Seattle. And uh, he was able to like, I guess, talk a lot of it. He talked about John Brown, who, you know, was the gold standard for, I guess, white allies, the guy who tried to lead a slave revolution in um, West Virginia. But um, he definitely like mentioned a lot of like, he literally ex- explicitly made a joke about eating the rich, which landed and was hilarious. And I think that someone who maybe wasn't as compelled by, as I am to say, you know, eat the rich might also find it funny. I'm trying to think of the specials I've watched on Netflix where, like, significant sections were about Trump. And, like, it's it's hard to do it well because it all just fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah, because it's either depressing or overdone, I think, when it comes to Trump humor. It's either something that's not that funny because it's, like, bleak or it's something that, like, f- you know, cofefe for, like, the 19th time or something like that. That orange buffoon. Sir, have you realized that you are bald or something like that? Like, so, yeah, we, we've talked before about the movie Hari made about uh, Apu, and uh, that definitely surged a few weeks ago when The Simpsons responded to it with a weird scene with Lisa Simpson sort of dismissing uh, whatever Hari was trying to say in the documentary by just kind of saying like well you know what's uh you know you used to be able to joke about stuff that's politically incorrect now a really uh gutless response by the simpsons i feel like they should just accept defeat and you know laugh all the way to the bank like they've done up to this point so i'm gonna talk about two specials that i watched one that I really liked, and one that was total garbage, honestly, I thought. And I was disappointed because her first special, I thought, was great. 
So the first one that I really liked that I watched was John Mulaney's new special, which I think was called Kid Gorgeous. And it was at Radio City, and the staging was, like, incredible. Like, the uh, great material about uh, sort of the same topics he always talks about, like, growing up with kind of a very, like, stern father. And um, I just feel like he's one of the best, like, writers today. And I just think, like, it's the kind of jokes that would have worked, like, 50 years ago, probably. Um, Do you like Mulaney? I can't say I'm, like, that familiar with much of his material. I feel like I mostly know about his show that famously like flopped like that's like the first thing that comes to mind for me which is not representative of his material at all apparently i watched every episode of that show and it was fucking bad (laughs) yeah i remember a lot of people i i feel like that's been like the overriding narrative with his material with him lately is like his stand-up is very well done but the show was so bad and he was supposed to be like his Seinfeld moment or something. And then, I mean, it was literally called like Mulaney in the same way that Jerry Seinfeld's show is called Seinfeld. Obviously he was a stand-up comedian in New York and you know, it was a lot of the similar stuff. I mean, I guess like the most overriding criticism I've heard of John Mulaney is that he's people say he's like, Oh, they're like, Oh, he's just another like fucking New York comedian. And I'm like, I guess, but so are, I, I don't think that like stands up. Cause I mean, who else, what, what else is there, man? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the, uh, you know, one of the main hubs of comedy. So I feel like he, uh, the acting and starring in a TV show, I don't think like, I think like this probably is the best vehicle for his like uh, humor, like stand up specifically, like talking to an audience. Yeah, and that's like a very biz- like unique and bizarre kind of art form to like specialize in. I mean, uh, it seems like something to be that is very difficult to be good at or to you know push the envelope in. It's true. And now the second special I watched was Ali Wong's new one. I th- oh god, what was the fucking title? I can't remember, but uh, I liked her first special, Baby Cobra. Um, Ali Wong kind of proved that you could suddenly become like a a level headlining comedian with just like a popular Netflix special because she really didn't have like any fame before that. But, you know, she's like ascended to like, you know, huge level. And to me... You know, and the same thing kind of happened with Mulaney where, like, you know, now he's playing, like, the biggest rooms. And I just feel like with Mulaney, he'd, like, elevated his material and Ali Wong just, like, retreaded old ground. And it was just, like, super fucking boring. Now, Sam, I ask you, have uh, you any relationship with Ali Wong's stand-up? Have you seen any of it? I was I watched the first special until someone in the room turned it off because they hated it so much. And... I didn't think it was that bad, but it, it, I don't know. It wasn't like necessarily for me. Yeah. She had this really interesting moment on Mark Marin's podcast where she like started like pumping her like breast milk for her child, like on air. Yeah. And I, I know that's like a, that was a big part of the, that special I saw was like her talking about her pregnancy. She was pregnant while delivering the stand up special. Yeah. And she did, and, uh, she is pregnant once again in this new one. Yeah, and I think that's, I guess, like an interesting avenue for comedy and something you probably don't see that often. But, uh, 
I guess I just, you know, I, I don't know if I'm always the best person to weigh in on, like, stand-up comedy. In this case, I just, whenever whenever I don't find it that funny, I never want to say, like, oh, it was bad. Everyone's just like, oh, I don't get it. <laughs> Went over my head, I guess. Okay, Hari Kondabalu, John Mulaney, good new Netflix specials, Ali Wong, eh, kind of boring. Um, Zack Snyder is making a fucking movie version of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Ugh. Yep, just uh, when you thought it couldn't get any worse than his interpretations of the DC, I guess universe. Um, we all we all saw Batman versus Superman and cringed in horror as like Jesse Eisenberg made a senator drink his own piss and like I, I don't know. Did you see that movie? Can you recount some of your more lurid moments from it? <laughs> Good God, I could not possibly sit through that film. I have not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Zack Snyder's Watchmen interpretation, I have seen a bunch. And additionally, 300, I think, is a movie we all saw when we were 13 and thought it was cool. Yeah, I thought it was cool. It's creepy. <laughs> like, alt-right messages are kind of hard to miss when you watched a second time now. Yeah, and even in the... Um, I wasn't surprised that Zack Snyder decided to turn to, you know, legendary piece of shit author uh, Ayn Rand because in in his I think superhero movies tend themselves to have like Randian themes in a way uh, people always I think people read Randians into like the the Incredibles movie as well but uh, definitely you get a bit of a vibe of that with like the way Superman is treated as like this kind of bizarre god figure in the DC Cinematic Universe currently but uh, the Fountainhead is a you know famous piece of trash book. The protagonist is this individualist like individualistic architect um, who designs these like aggressively modernist buildings. But these antiquated like people complain and refuse to compromise, and he has to like strike out on his own, which is like the theme of every fucking Ayn Rand book is like that you're some brilliant entrepreneur who strikes out on his own to be like this you know individualist fantasy and. Uh, it's no surprise that like a lot of the worst people like this sort of shit like uh like Zack snyder it's brutal to think about sitting through like his visual style combined with ayn rand's like storytelling yeah i've never made it through one of her books but i've very rarely found people who i agree with on you know literature tell me that they really liked it i've heard that she has kind of like a really grating like long you know kind of vague style I think it's story time. This story time continues the trend of hate, I think. So, Memorial Day, I had the pleasure of attending the Yankee game against the Houston Astros. Justin Verlander kicked the Yankees' little bottoms into submission. And the game itself, there wasn't a ton of memorable moments. But the... Seventh inning stretch included this moment, which uh, some fans captured on video. So let's play the audio. So what you just heard was the announcer saying that the New York Yankees wish Rudy Giuliani a happy birthday and a collective overwhelming boo from the stadium. And I'm happy to say 
I was able to partake in that with my uncle and a truly powerful New York moment. Yeah, I heard the audio after you uh, told me about it and it's like instantaneous and then just sustained booing. Like people are, he's just so deeply unpopular in New York at this time. Unmistakable booing too that Giuliani seemed to bizarrely respond to by saying that this is what they do in New York when they like you. <laughs> Treat you like a Red Sox player. <laughs> like, oh. Give me a break. Rudy, they hate you, bud. Yeah, come on. Like New York's not like this alternate world where you're just mean to people you like or something. Like New Yorkers are mean, but they intend to be mean when they do it, I think. And this is really telling that Mr. 9-11, Rudy Giuliani, is a pariah in a stadium which he, uh, I mean, wasn't he kind of like the guy? Didn't they love him there? <laughs> I mean, as Rudy Giuliani would tell it, he probably would say that he, like, you know, was instrumental in making sure that, like, the terrorists didn't destroy, like, Yankee Stadium and... uh you know, some other, like, dumb landmark, like like Katz's Delicatessen or something like that. I have to say, it felt good that it didn't feel even... It didn't even feel subversive to boo Rudy Giuliani. It felt, like, celebratory that we Yankee fans and Houston fans could agree that this man is a sack of dog shit. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes sports produce beautiful moments like that yeah it's not always a cesspool of you know what nfl owners refusing to let uh you know nfl players have the right to freedom of speech or whatever yeah and god they must have an egg on their face after (laughs) the eagles were disinvited to the white house after they made concessions to trump saying that they would uh fine players who kneel during the anthem or whatever but i don't know the nfl will be dead in 20 years (laughs) one can only hope for the sake of the players definitely and yeah did you have any other questions for me regarding my brutal booing of rudolph julian so rudy was like there right i don't know so i i I actually think he wasn't there because i i don't I don't remember seeing him on screen. That would have been so ruthless if they like, uh, you know, on the what the tele on the tele the jumbotron on the jumbotron. That's the word I'm looking for. Fucking like zoom in on like the birthday boy and just as the whole place is booing him, that'd be so ruthless. Just give him the kiss cam. (laughs) And a little epilogue to this week's plunge. We are hopping back on to talk a little bit about. The deceased uh, Anthony Bourdain. Sam, uh, I was a big fan of his work, uh, his writing, and his uh, shows. Um, I I wonder this kind of, like, because you worked in the, like, restaurant industry and, like, cooking and stuff. So I wonder, does he appeal to you or are you, like, too jaded? No, no, for sure. Yeah, he appeals. Um I think, like, in general, a lot of cooks uh, know what he's talking about, at least, even if they maybe disagree with him. But, like, he's so fucking, like, relatable to just, like, 
every cook I've ever worked with personally. Um, back when I worked in, you know, I guess kitchens back in New Orleans. And uh, he's kind of like the Larry David of food. Like, he's seen it all, mm. and he's, like, not impressed. But, like, there are things that he does love, and I think he gets unfairly maligned as, like, overly negative. Well, I think everyone knows by now that he uh, committed suicide last Friday. And this has kind of, like, hit the world hard. I think uh, he was loved uh, and respected by just uh, wide swaths of people around the world. And um, I guess we'll go through a few of his, like, you know, highlights and uh, just some moments where we thought he was was really, uh, you know, right about stuff and... What, you know, I, I can't speak too much from, like, the culinary side, but as, you know, someone who was just kind of, like, uh, I'm not, like, a foodie person. I don't really, like, care to get deep on that sort of stuff, but he, he kind of made made it more accessible, obviously. And I like the way he talked about how uh, restaurants were kind of where, like, sort of radical um almost he even said like criminal types <laughs> sort of gravitate to the business yeah i mean cooking is definitely like you know i don't i'm not a cook anymore it's definitely something that um attracts a certain kind of person who doesn't mind like the long hours and the kind of insane and like you know highly dangerous environment the low pay and i think above all things my experience, my limited experience cooking was that it's like very thankless. Um, even if you are maybe like a manager or something, it, it's it. You feel a lot of times very alienated from your work, especially if you're not. If you're like in a kitchen and you're in the back at a fa- fancy place, and the you know diners aren't supposed to really even see you at all, you're basically supposed to be like not there. It can feel very. Uh, I don't know a little like like solitary confinement or something like you're just kind of you are like trapped in like this metal room uh working under these insane conditions so but i guess what bourdain did with his earlier writing and specifically in that new yorker piece don't eat before reading this that kind of launched him um yeah that seems to be like a a landmark moment of like culinary writing right uh, that and the kitchen confidential i guess the book his book um which i guess was a result of this first article and uh there's i had a lot of notes on this i don't know if you had any general impressions for the listeners that you want to you know drop i mean he has like a hunter thompson-esque writing style it's very, Gonzo, like, yeah. to the point he sort of deconstructs the mundane very well like you you just don't when i go to a restaurant i don't like i don't see what he sees you know and it's interesting just to get in his head about it yeah he's very poetic about not just the experience of working in a kitchen day to day but the experience of like what a lifetime i mean people in the in the food service industry and especially cooks call it the life which is uh interesting because it's just like you do work in this kind of vampiric way you work way longer hours than people you don't become you can't really be friends with people who don't have the same hours as you because everyone else's weekend is your the beginning of your week sometimes or at least definitely your busiest day sure like nights weekends and holidays are when restaurants are for sure the most busy 
Yeah, my, my old boss at the cocktail bar in New Orleans used to say, I he, he used to be like, we're the kind of people who, when you see a holiday, you think, I can get paid a ton of money on that day, and, and everyone else will, then I'll go have my own holiday a different day. And uh, it, there are some things I miss about that lifestyle, from because now when I, I just try to go out for a breakfast this morning on a Sunday, and it's fucking impossible because everyone and their fucking grandma is out there. Whereas when you're a cook, you have like Tuesday or like Monday off or something if you do get days off. So you wind up going to restaurants and stuff where just there's nobody there. And that's something that Bourdain really fucking nails is he talks about the best time to get fish is on a Tuesday in a restaurant. Like that's absolutely fucking true because that's when all the new food comes out. And also regulars in restaurants don't eat out on Fridays and Saturdays. They eat out on weekdays because that's the best time. That's when like the most adventurous menus are out. And he goes into that. He's like, spot on. At least from my experience. I want to read uh, one of my favorite quotes in the New Yorker piece. He says, Gastronomy is the science of pain. Professional cooks belong to a secret society whose ancient rituals derive from the principles of stoicism in the face of humiliation, injury, fatigue, and the threat of illness. The members of a tight, well-greased kitchen staff are a lot like a submarine crew, confined for most of their waking hours in hot, airless spaces and ruled by despotic leaders. They often acquire the characteristics of the poor saps who were press-ganged into the royal navies of Napoleonic times, superstition, a contempt for outsiders, and a loyalty to no flag but their own. Like, damn, he's talking about a restaurant staff. In conjunction with his brilliant, like, writing style, he is also very fucking good at nailing things that cooks think about. Uh, Some of the things that I thought were just genius. The part about butter, he says, another much maligned food these days is butter. In the world of chefs, however, butter is in everything. Even non-French restaurants, the Northern Italian, the New American, the ones where the chef brags about how he's getting away from butter and cream, throw butter around like crazy. In every restaurant worth patronizing, and this is where it gets really good, sauces are enriched with mellowing, emulsifying butter. Pastas are tightened with it. Meat and fish are seared with a mixture of butter and oil. Shallots and chicken are caramelized with butter. It's the first and last thing in almost every pan. The final hit is called Monteaber. In the good restaurant, what this all adds up to is that you could be putting away almost a stick with butter with every meal. Absolutely true. All good restaurants. Butter tastes fucking awesome. It makes everything better. I feel similarly about eggs, but butter is definitely the, the first thing that you would, I would think of in terms of like if I'm going to write about one ingredient like this way. I love how he shits on brunch. <laughs> then there Absolutely are the true. people who brunch, which he writes like the, like in all caps, people who brunch. The B word is dreaded by all dedicated cooks. We hate the smell and spatter of omelets. We despise hollandaise, home fries, those pathetic fruit garnishes, and all the other cliche accompaniments designed to, Go off, in- King. to induce a tr- credulous public into paying twelve ninety five for two eggs. <laughs> Um, and then he he calls uh, vegetarians a Hezbollah like. No, he said vegans are the Hezbollah of vegetarians, <laughs> which is genius. Yeah. And absolutely, from a culinary perspective, I mean, I am a vegetarian, but it's for like you know, like pussy boy reasons. Like I just you know don't want to eat animals. But uh, from a culinary perspective, meat tastes fucking good. All fucking meat is delicious. Get the fuck out with that. So. 
any other things to pull away from this article before we dive into some just Bourdain quotes and moments? I love when he talks about in this piece the things that he loves about cooking. Like, he has this one bit about how the foods he does like. He says, strange things. Oysters are my favorite, especially at 3 in the morning in the company of my crew. Focaccia pizza with robiola cheese and white truffle oil is good, especially at Le Madrid on a summer afternoon in the outdoor patio. Frozen vodka at Siberia Bar. Uh, He just has, like... It's very place-oriented and specific food, and that's, like, the fucking genius. That is how, I mean, cooks wind up eating the weird food. Uh, There are certain cuts that are traditionally saved for cuts for cooks, like, um, you know, giblets on a chicken. We saute that up, and uh, you get these just delicious fucking sweetbreads or, like, chicken livers or things that you don't necessarily put on a menu in a refined place but are just so goddamn good and cooks know about it and they get to just have it on their own and uh it it almost made me choke up a bit and i love how he talks about he loves the sheer weirdness of kitchen life and um he talks about at the end how he's working at a place that he really likes because it has lots of locals there aren't very many vegetarians people like their meat rare and there are i think cooks it's not all doom and gloom even though it is a very rough trade and it's getting harder by the day I think there are these like cooks who get to go out to greener pastures and do what they like to do and have a nice life as cooks and I think it's just beautiful that he goes into that and uh, you know I think this sets the tone for his later work as well which we should go into well let's talk about some of his kind of just he's so fucking funny like here's one when he was asked what he would cook for the peace summit between President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, and he said hemlock, which (laughs) (laughs) is a poisonous plant uh, that has been used for executions. It's pretty funny that he was able to say that and just no one gave a fuck because Bourdain (laughs) was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it would be ironic, too, if uh, Trump went out the same way as, like, Socrates, but his politics, I mean, Anthony Bourdain's politics, for a guy, for, like, a white guy who did, like, a travel show about, like, eating food around the world, his politics were really fucking good. I mean, definitely it's crystallized in his famous statement about Cambodia, which he says, you know, once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You will never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statementship, and you will never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic while Henry continues to nibble nori rolls and remind at A-list parties, Cambodia, the neutral nation he secretly and illegally bombed, invaded, undermined them through the dogs, is still trying to raise itself up on one remaining leg. I mean, spot on. Yeah, I mean, that's just like biting. And then there was this other story where Bourdain was asked if he could meet anyone in history, who would it be? And apparently he misheard the question as asking if he could kill anyone in history, who would it be? And without hesitation, he said, Henry Kissinger. Hell yeah. I mean, it's a great choice. And I love that even, you know, Anthony Bourdain in his show talks a lot about how much he loves South Asia, especially like Vietnam. 
and uh, that was where I think the, it's healthy the Obama that, uh, dinner was that 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 he did. So that yeah, I feel like his and he went back to like Vietnam and South South Asia like multiple times. Yeah, and he so if you're gonna do that and you're gonna like you know kind of vacation in their place and eat their food and like benefit from the you know guess you know how much money uh, American dollars are worth over there then it, you sh- this should be your outlook that you are furious at your own politicians for like ruining the place and dumping napalm on them and committing genocide let's see um maybe we should go into some of his more light-hearted uh <laughs> quotes no, other yeah, than yeah, uh, his quotes about genocidal I, uh, murderers i liked his quote about the white house correspondence dinner and he he kind of he just saw right through a lot of the kind of bullshit celebrity stuff like i, I don't know he seemed to keep his sort of rebel outlaw sort of yeah punk uh, rock bad boy <laughs> yeah even as like you know a 60 year old man um i'm not going to the white house correspondence dinner i don't need to be laughing it up with henry kissinger, kissinger henry again baby he hates that guy has ever been polite to henry kissinger you know fuck that person i'm a big believer in moral gray areas but when it comes to that guy in my view he should not be able to eat at a restaurant in new york yeah, man. I mean, he also has just great reads of, like, celebrities. Like, you put in this uh, fucking Baldwin one. Uh, he's on Twitter, told uh, Alec Baldwin, you are really too dumb to pour piss out of a boot. And then he also uh, tweeted <laughs> about Ted Cruz um, <laughs> that I'm going to start a Kickstarter to buy Ted Cruz a fleshlight. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and uh, continuing in his like insane reads on people, he the the James Beard Food Awards, which you know I, I uh, actually kind of worked at a place that won a James Beard Award, but to talk shit on them, yeah, 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 yeah you know, humble brag, but uh, he dunked on them saying uh that it really does look like the republican national convention or the last wallace campaign uh you're talking about a business that's between 30 and 70 percent non-white but it seems that like everyone at that fucking place is just you know the white owners and shit and that was another interesting thing that he had said in the lead up to Trump's election or right after that if Trump was to deport all undocumented immigrants there wouldn't be a restaurant industry he's like every restaurant would close yeah I mean that is playing into stereotypes a little bit but it's also not like a it's not a stereotype for without a reason I mean food service is a place where people can find late uh, you know employment off the books uh, which is both good and bad I mean a lot of those people who work off the books get exploited pretty pretty heavily but I mean it just goes to show he he I think genuinely did stick up for that community a lot in his um you know in his statements about the James Beard Award I think he took some flack for that statement about how like oh if you deport all the undocumented immigrants you'll lose your whole restaurant industry but I think that that outrage was like misplaced and you know decontextualized I think in general his heart was in the right place about supporting I guess the Hispanic community in restaurants and what did you think about his his tirade against beer snobs <laughs> yeah i love that he um i mean this is a common target i think in uh especially culinary circles 
But uh, what he makes fun of, he says, like, he hates when people try to, like, make him drink some fucking Mumford & Sons IPA, which is hilarious. But uh, I happened to, this is a common bogeyman. I, I remember David Chang saying, like, he, he had a, a good piece where he talks about why he likes cheap, cold beer. Like, he, he specifically in that uh, thing where he says the Mumford & Sons IPA thing, when Anthony Bourdain says that, he says that he likes to drink just a cold beer. If you want to drink cold beer, you should absolutely, this is my culinary opinion, drink cheap beer. Because, like, beers that are made in, like, Europe and stuff that, you know, Americans are now copying, I guess, in, like, the microbrew movement, um, those beers are, if you read, like, culinary textbooks, they're meant to be drank at, like, between 45 and 65 degrees Fahrenheit, like, pretty warm relative to here in the U.S. We want our beer to be, like, icy, icy cold, and we make fun of Europeans for drinking their warm beer. But that is the way they're intended to be drank. So if you want a cold beer, you're wasting your money if you drink some fancy, stupid microbrew um, that, so you know, someone charges you, like, you know, $18 for a six-pack of. If you drink that cold, you're, like, kind of depriving yourself of, like, the flavors, which is presumably what you're paying for. And the second part of this is that those fucking beers that are all like funky and sour and whatever. I mean, not to like rag on them too much. I love drinking them, but it's fucking impossible to pair them with anything, especially IPAs. I've like, I've only found that like spicy food pairs well with those like really hoppy, like pale beers. Um, so, I mean, that's my read on that, but I think he's right on the money and this is a common bogeyman in the food circles. A couple more things. He, he wrote a really, like, thoughtful Medium article about, like, the Me Too movement, and his, uh, up until his death, was dating Asia Argento, who was an actress who was accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault. So he was definitely, like, kind of thinking hard and being vocal about the extent to which his own uh, work in the restaurant industry, like, how he had treated women in the past, and... This is like a good quote from me. The last line is, To the extent which my work in Kitchen Confidential celebrated or prolonged a culture that allowed the kind of grotesque behaviors we're hearing about all too frequently is something I think about daily with real remorse. So that was something that he was vocal about. Also, I, I will say that when it comes to the way that women are treated in the service industry, I mean, especially servers, it can be like pretty rough for them. I mean... I used to manage at a place and I, I just remember I, I wanted to like talk to with the people I hired. Whenever I hired women, I was always, especially because I needed the labor. And it, was, it is really hard to hire people in the food service industry. I was always like, if you hear anything, you know, like, I, I tried to like foster this environment of like, please mention any of this because I know what this industry can be like, you know, and that's the opposite of the kind of place I'm trying to create, I guess. Um, yeah, when you're the manager, you got to kind of, you know, it's up to you to establish that shit and for sure so i mean it's cool that he is someone who you know talks so candidly about the food service industry and especially about what sexuality is like in the food service industry which he goes into a lot it's cool that he did the right thing and was like because of what i've seen i also think it's important to speak out about this kind of you know movement that's going on right now um he also talked about i guess like the the food how food critics are like bullying snobs and how he reached out to this like lady who wrote like a a very impassioned review about olive garden apparently and then people were dunking her on her in on the internet and then he like stuck up for her which is awesome he not only stuck up for he flew her to new york and took her to one of the best restaurants in the city and he wrote the forward to her book yeah, which is, you know, he's a solid dude, I think, in, in, in at the end of the day. In the forward, uh, like in a nutshell, 
He wrote, this book kills Snark dead. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you know, and there's also this story that I saw that he had this kid at one of his events. Uh, you know, he was like uh, terminally ill and he asked Bourdain where he should uh, go in the world to eat if he could eat anywhere. And Bourdain said Spain. And he got his publicist to get in touch with the kid's family after. And he paid for the kid to do a Make-A-Wish trip to Spain. And when the the kid's story was written about, he didn't uh, take any credit. So, I don't know. That, that It's that kind of like, that's almost like cartoonishly, yeah. you know, benevolent and really <laughs> just amazing story. Yeah, and especially for someone who's so widely known as someone who's, like, mean-spirited, or I guess, or, like, you know, sarcastic or negative or at least sardonic. Like, he really did have, did have like, sort of a heart of gold under all of that, I think. I remember he also would call that out on other chefs who tried to play that kind of thing. I remember him talking about how, like, Gordon Ramsay in real life is, like, the nicest and, like, <laughs> sweetest human being. And that his whole, like, cursing and screaming shtick is just, like, a, a money-making act for him, basically. Two quotes he had about weed. Uh, Next to making a proper omelet or wiping your own ass, rolling a joint is an essential life skill for any self-respecting member of society. <laughs> but at the same time, he also has uh, a great quote where he says, I understand that there's a guy inside me who wants to lay in bed, smoke weed all day, and watch cartoons and old movies. My whole life is a series of stratagems to avoid and outwit that guy, which I also think we can maybe both identify with. I mean, if you don't smoke weed, I think the impulse to sit around and like watch TV all day is definitely something that's encouraged these days, even with like you know binge watching becoming like more and more socially acceptable. <laughs> Yeah, and then there were just a couple of terrible conservative oh, threads God. that just got utterly, like, ratioed. Um, this one guy, Ryan Beckwith, he wrote, uh, A few years ago, I pitched a counterintuitive take on Anthony Bourdain's politics that I ended up not writing for a variety of reasons, but here you go. The pitch. Anthony Bourdain is a model for how Republicans could make conservatism cool. Hear me out, and we're not going to hear him out, because, <laughs> but if you want to see, this is, this, Sam, this is a ratio. Eight retweets, 56 likes, 1.1 thousand comments. <laughs> Delete your account, buddy. And then, of course, uh, the person, uh, we came, I think I came to that tweet because someone quote tweeted it saying you didn't dare publish this when anthony bourdain was alive because you knew he'd personally come to your front door and beat your ass which is also 100 percent oh, true he would never allow himself to be used as a symbol of like republican politics that's just absolutely ridiculous and finally this uh dickhead writer david leave it said if you're religious then you believe there's a special place in hell or purgatory for people like anthony bourdain who take their own lives and then i later saw that i wonder why he doesn't like bourdain and it was because bourdain had tweeted at him once you sir are truly a steaming gaping asshole <laughs> 
Wow. And then the guy screenshotted that and said that selfishly taking your own life and hurting your friends makes you the asshole. So he's trying to dunk on Anthony Bourdain in the afterlife because once again, sort of like the first guy, he would never have been able to try to do this while Anthony Bourdain is alive. And I think talking shit on a person who's dead and can't defend themselves is like the lowest fucking act you can take. And then that got ratioed like crazy to 2.1 thousand likes, 493 retweets, and 19,000 comments. Yeah, good. Just Yeah, just just I mean, if it didn't give these people attention, I would I don't know, it's so depressing. <laughs> a couple of takeaways that I just want to throw into this before we get out of here is, um, well, firstly, that, you know, posting the suicide hotline number is great, but it doesn't really do anything to solve the underlying issues that lead to suicide. Like, it's good that, you know, this conversation can be had, especially with this recent reporting that suicides are up, like, what, 20%. And I think that if you're not simultaneously posting with your thing about, uh, you know, everybody needs to talk to someone and like all that, that we need universal health care, uh, then you're just a, you're just f- full of shit. Yeah, it's definitely one of those cases where, uh, you know, people are always saying that the solution is some kind of individual action that, you know, that I guess it kind of it leads you to the bizarre conclusion or it seems to imply that the, you know, people don't commit suicide because they don't call the hotline or something or that it's like, you know, it's I mean, obviously, I don't know if that's the, the intention, but it is sort of like an implication that follows from that. And definitely universal health care would make sure that mental health care is not a privilege. Mental health care does not reach certain populations and it's not universal and there's stigmas against it. And also just, you know, financial obstacles or practical obstacles. So that's something that needs to be addressed as well. And uh, definitely what you said about the increase of, in suicides recently, I mean, a, a lot of the times I think suicide tends to correlate closely with financial anxiety. There was a, an article in the one of the pr- print editions of Current Affairs that talked about this pretty clearly. And uh, I, I think that that's something else that has been kind of, you know, it would be something that's good to mention in this time if we're going to be talking about the suicide epidemic in this country, which is absolutely at epidemic levels. Maybe we should have a little bit more of a, you know, a contextualized argument against it. This one of, of all of the celebrity deaths, uh, you know, this one, uh, it really sucks. Cause it seemed like part of his mystique in his story was that he kind of like fought through his demons, you know, and it just, it's really sad that he just didn't get the, you know, the help he needed when he needed it. Yeah, and it's he's also a sort of a voice that maybe I was taking for granted while he was alive, and now that he's gone, I'm kind of like, wow, it's going to be a... Uh, th- in these times, we really need everyone we can get, so when we lose someone who really was, like, a, a strong ally, I think, then it, it's, you know, it's bleak moving into this dark future. But luckily, we have Lin-Manuel Miranda here to make us feel better. Dan, do you want to read this stinky, stinky, stinky tweet? Ugh. All right, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna just gonna read the morning and the night tweet just in a row, and then we're leaving. Then we're just leaving the scene of the crime because I'm just gonna drop these here. Yeah. Good morning. This is from like uh, Friday morning. 
when the news of uh, Bourdain's death uh, hit the uh, hit the internet. Good morning, all caps. You are so loved, and we like having you around. Asterisk ties one end of this sentence to your heart, the other end to everyone who loves you, even the ones you haven't heard from for a while. Asterisk, asterisk, checks knots, asterisk, all caps. There, stay put, you heart, like five heart emojis. <laughs> and then the night tweets, good night, all caps. You are so loved and we like having you around. Asterisk ties one end of the sentence to your heart, the other end to everyone who loves you in this life, even if clouds obscure your view. Asterisk, asterisk, checks not, asterisk, all caps. There, stay put, you. Tug if you need anything. And five hearts once again. As if, like, if you tweeted at Lin-Manuel Miranda that you wanted to kill yourself, he would respond. As if... The only thing that can stop people from committing suicide is a tweet from a celebrity addressed to nobody in particular. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I don't think Lynn, uh, he should, you know, maybe maybe that should be the basis of a new rap. I said, you don't need to go and commit suicide. It's not the things that we do on the West Side. Like, uh, some more nerdcore stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Who's like a... Uh, we're not exploring this. We're not writing any uh, Lin-Manuel ra- Miranda raps about suicide. No. Um. All right, let's end it there. Uh, R.I.P. Tony Bourdain. Uh, you were one of the good ones. Yeah, and definitely we are going to miss him more than ever moving into you know darker and darker times as we continue our you know downward spiral down the american cultural toilet and you know where to find us the plunge itunes stitcher soundcloud at plunge underscore podcast on twitter and uh thanks for listening we'll see you next time you are loved